Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 923. At the top of the show, David Lorela is joined by Cole Irvin, left-handed pitcher for the Oakland A's, and Colin McKee, right-hander in the Houston Astros system. The pair of pitchers talk with David about how they use StatCast data, or how they don't, and which readings are most important to them in their development. They also talk about things like teaching pitching in the offseason, how their use of spin affects their arsenals differently, and the differences between pitching in the rotation and the bullpen. Cole and Colin also discuss the nuances of long toss exercises, including some players they know that do it much differently than others. Tyler Ivey, he's on our taxi squad right now, but he he goes pole to pole before his start. Pole it's to pretty pole? pretty impressive to watch. The last time I saw pole to pole was Trevor Bauer when he was at UCLA, and I was starting against him. I was trying to warm up down the line, and he was like on our foul pole, and I was like, what are you doing over here? In the second half, Jason Martinez is joined by Jay Jaffe to talk about Albert Pujols, Los Angeles Dodger. Can Pujols still hit left-handed pitching well enough to be a useful player for the defending world champions? And how will this stint possibly shape the legacy of his Hall of Fame career, which already had a pretty up-and-then-down trajectory? Jason and Jay discuss those things and more, including the huge impact Albert Pujols has had on many of the players in the game. You know, and it's like, it just reminded me, like, these kids all grew up, you know, playing baseball with with this guy, like, is is one of the best hitters, you know, ever. And now he's still playing. So I'm like, it would be, you know, he's one of those guys you'd like to see retire where, you know, you know ahead of time. And when when he's going into wherever it is for the last time, you know. He gets the reception, yeah. Reception, yeah. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you enjoy the show and are able to help us out, consider a Fangraphs.com ad-free membership. It is the best way to browse the site and support us so we can try to keep up with all these no-hitters and other baseball happenings. Check out our merch page for shirts, coffee mugs, hats, memberships, and more. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guests on this segment are Cole Irvin, left-handed pitcher for the Oakland A's, and Colin McKee, right-handed pitcher for the Houston Astros AAA affiliate, the Sugarland Skeeters. And now that we have battled about 20 minutes worth of technical issues, we are going to talk pitching. Gents, it's good to have both of you on. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, before uh, we get nerdy with pitching, I think we should touch briefly on on career paths. Uh, Colin, four years ago this summer, you told me the following. I'm a realist. I'm 23 and playing short season ball, but I need to see where this takes me. It's taken you pretty far so far. One more step to go. Yeah, a lot has changed since that summer, honestly. It's gotten just a lot more comfortable and confident throwing in professional baseball. A lot of little mechanical changes. But honestly, it's just been like a comfort and confidence thing. The The repertoire hasn't really changed a whole lot, but come come a long way from that. No, for sure. And Cole, you're having a breakthrough season with the A's after not establishing yourself with the Phillies. And we did touch on that in our recent print interview, but you should maybe address it for our listeners. You know, why, why so successful this year? Uh, just going back to what was working for me in the minor leagues. You know, there's there's a point in your career, and, and Colin, maybe you can speak to this a little bit, that you come to understand who you are. You come to understand that it's your career, and you may have some suggestions from coaches that take you down a different path. At least that's how it felt for me. And I was told to pitch a different way by a couple people, and, and I tried to 
stick in the big leagues and and do that sort of thing and it just turned out being a situation where this off season I I looked at my success and where I had success and why I did and took it upon myself to be able to make those adjustments and and trust that I can do what I have been doing my whole minor league career in the big leagues and uh you're seeing you're seeing all that happen right now. And Colin, how has the advice from coaches aspect worked for you? Honestly, I really agree with Cole. I've, I've received a lot of really helpful inf- information since I've joined the Astros in 2016, but really I, I feel like I'm most successful whenever I'm really trying to keep it simplified and just trusting kind of trusting my stuff and trusting my process almost. And having this time off from 2019 until now kind of reinforce that confidence and i mean i'm looking at the track man and stuff like that but i really don't sell out to make too many big changes i just kind of want to go out and just execute pitches and trust that uh, my process is going to work you both embrace simplicity and you both know analytics pretty well you also both teach pitching in the off season so what do you tell young pitchers about how to balance that i really just look at the analytics as as a tool and it's kind of obviously a nice guide to have but it's really easy to fall into the trap of uh, maybe small sample size or trying to change something from, from one bad rep or something like that. Um, I see a lot of guys, like maybe if they have a bad day with their curveball or something like that, and it's fitting not, not wonderfully, they try to really change everything with their mentality or their grip or make wholesale changes instead of uh, maybe just tweaking the line that they're throwing it on or something really, really simple. I try to really make pitching as simple as possible while using the analytics as a as a guide i don't think you can really sell out one way or another because that's where guys kind of fall into trouble yeah i'd have to i'd have to agree in terms of the analytics in terms of a personal note now like in the off season when i'm coaching i feel like every every guy that i've maybe had my hands on to be able to kind of top pitching and and what have you they want to know how hard they're throwing they want to know these new terms of spin rate and and what have you and and I feel like for the high school kids that's an education more so than it is a uh, tool for them I, I think for analytics and and understanding trackman data and all that rapsodo you have to take it piece by piece kind of like what Colin was saying and and it's not and and don't hold it for for truth because it's still a computer and the computer sometimes still reads wrong. And I think it's important that, you know, in the off season, when you're, when you're coaching and stuff, for, at least for me, I want to teach kids a repeatable delivery, uh, repeatable mechanics, drills they can do on their own, maybe a little bit of arm care, because I feel like at a young age, these kids are starting to throw harder and worry about their velocity. And I feel like the art of pitching has, has gone a wayside. So I think that's what I focus on in, in terms of when I'm giving lessons and what have you uh, from a pitching standpoint. And I also do hitting too, but that's a totally different topic. But that gives you a different perspective on on how to coach pitching as well. So I, I just think the analytics can it, it can really confuse young players and, and can really, even for me, confuse me at times. Just to piggyback off that, I would just say that uh, basically there's a lot of things that guys can do before kind of entering the analytics space to kind of put themselves in a position to succeed. 
as young pitchers, like preparing their body the right way, like eating right, even just like the simple, like you said, arm care, long toss. I would say like the analytics is almost the top of the, the food pyramid. Like it's almost the last kind of thing to focus on, I would think. While it is important, it's not the end all be all, especially at the younger age. And this is a pitcher in the Houston Astros system uttering those words, <laughs> which some people <laughs> may find find interesting. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, Cole, a few minutes ago, spin. Uh, you do not spin the baseball especially well. Colin, you do. So with that in mind, why is spin important and why is spin not important? Well, I mean, for for me, <laughs> I'm spinning the ball the way I know how. Just because you can spin the ball doesn't make you a great pitcher. Um, and that's and not, I'm not trying to say anything about guys that can spin it really well. It's more so just like I prefer to pitch. I prefer to think through the at-bat. I, I prefer – and I'm not totally focused on trying to spin a baseball. Um, I think it's more of just a, a grip pressure thing or or just a, a way a guy has been doing it his whole life. I think spin is just dependent on the individual. So I'm spinning it the way I know how with my arm slot and, and my my release point. But Colin spins it the way he does, and it's it's completely separate of each other. And it's it's I think is a very independent stat that has no weight to it because Colin's going to use spin to his advantage, but he's not thinking about spinning a baseball, uh, or at least that's what I I would assume. Uh, you could you know correct me on that if I'm wrong, but I I think for me the lack of spin gives me more deception on my pitches. And then when I do throw a little bit higher spinning four seam, not intentionally, because I'm not thinking about spin, it plays up. So I just think it's it's different for everyone. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm not thinking about spin. I'll, like, it's just kind of come naturally with, I honestly think it's from long tossing, like through college and like I would try to backspin the ball to make it travel further. I wasn't really thinking about it as it would help me for pitching. It was just kind of helping me throw the ball further for long toss. And then it just translated to the mound. I, I mean, back in when I was in college, really like spin rates were just starting to come into like popularity. So I wasn't really doing it for anything other than just to throw it further. So it kind of just translates now, fortunately, but it is the last thing I think about. But having the spin and knowing what I have now, I think it allows me to compete in zone better. I don't have to be quite as fine with the fastball. I almost have to trust that it's going to play, especially towards like the top of the zone for me. I find it interesting for, for you that you were trying to put backspin on the baseball and long toss. Like for me, my mentality on a long toss is just try to throw it, keep it on a line as long as I can. Is that kind of the same mentality behind like a like backs the reasoning behind backspin and you know long toss because i mean for me if i wanted to keep my mechanics as close to the same as possible no matter if i was throwing on flat ground or on on the mound just kind of i, I kind of was just curious about that yeah so in college we kind of followed the, the jaeger long toss plan where on the way out you would just kind of backspin it and be free and easy and not be afraid to put arc on it and then as you got out to Two, two, three hundred feet, obviously your intent is going to have to increase, but you're still trying to be free and easy and put arc on it and backspin. And then on your way back in, you're keeping that same free and easy 
intent that you were throwing at 300 feet, but put it on a line. And I'm still trying to backspin it when I'm throwing on a line. And I mean, it might be four hopping up there from 300 feet, but just kind of staying behind the ball with both your index and middle finger and really leveraging that backspin would just help me get carry and, and distance on it and kind of just translate it to the mound. Interesting. That's interesting because like for me, the mentality behind the way I was taught lawn toss, obviously we both come from different backgrounds, right? And like the way I was taught lawn toss was to be able to keep it on a line. And once you couldn't keep it on a line or one hop it, like with a good one hop, it was like, okay, you reached your max. And it wasn't necessarily about like creating shoulder tilt or anything like that, or like trying to throw it as, as, as far as you could. It was more so like controlling your distance by building your arm strength to that distance. And it's interesting how, how every, everywhere you go, it long toss throwing a baseball is and arm strength and all that is, is always taught differently. Yeah. There's definitely no one way to teach that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, who is the biggest long toss monster that either of you have played with? Who? Tyler Ivy. He's on our taxi squad right now, but he he goes pole to pole before his start. Pole it's to pretty pole? pretty impressive to watch. The last time I saw pole to pole was Trevor Bauer when he was at UCLA, and I was starting against him. I was trying to warm up down the line, and he was like on our foul pole, and I was like, what are you doing over here? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's dialed it back since we first drafted him, but even on a start date, he'll be out there for, oh my for a long time. Like It wears me I, out I watching can't go, I can't go past like maybe 95 feet on a start date because I'm trying to save my bullets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel you there. Especially, I'm, a, I'm a reliever now, starter in college, but I, I'm always saving bullets at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so any, any teammates, Cole, who, who can really throw it? I, I think there's multiple guys on every team. I know... Chris Bassett and Yusmero Petit like to do lawn toss just about every day. I do it every now and again, but uh, it's only for just to lengthen, lengthen things out. It's on, on my arm more so than <laughs> that we're throwing every day at this point. So I'm trying to just save bullets. <laughs> bullets are, are important. Colin, you mentioned spin and knowing your spin a few minutes ago. What is more important to you, the spin rate, the spin efficiency, or the spin axis? Oh, that's a good question. Probably most important would be knowing your spin axis because then you have an idea of what your pitches are going to do and how they're going to play when the hitter sees them. You know, um, like if you have a, a 12 o'clock fastball, obviously, like that's going to be riding through the top of the zone without a lot of lateral movement and stuff like that. But I mean, the spin efficiency and spin axis are hand in hand because without spin efficiency or spin axis is basically useless. So, you know, all three of them are equally very important if you, if you want to know what your stuff is and how it's going to play. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Cole? I like to see <laughs> when I see TrackMan data or, or Rapsodo data, obviously I'm taking it for a grain of salt because sometimes it doesn't read always accurately, but I like to, I like to see pitch shape. I, I, it's funny that you might know your pitch access because our access, I, I can't stand to look at it because the way I release the ball apparently is just weird, but I have on my two seam for uh, four seam, I'm, I'm 95% plus on efficiency. I do know those. And then change up. I'm, I'm like above 75, 80% efficiency on it. 
but the slider, I don't know how I get the spin or the axis that I do, and it bothers me, so I try not to look at it. And then the curveball is just I, I don't I don't throw enough in bullpens to to really look at it all that intently, but it's interesting because I just like I try to find the the catcher view or the hitter's view to see how that pitch is coming in and where it's starting to break and how it's tunneling. That's what I look at. I don't necessarily look at like all the numbers because again, I'm not spinning the ball and in bullpen sessions when I'm getting the data, it's it's not even max effort. Like there's no adrenaline, there's no and and that's just I guess maybe maybe I'm naive for not using the data fully, but it's that's just how that's just how I've looked at it and I just want to see where it's breaking and and how close to the plate is the hitter seeing the pitch. Yeah, Colin, unless this has changed since we last spoke a year ago, you throw a gyro slider. How does that differ from a traditional slider? So my spin efficiency on my slider is is very, very low. So like TrackMan or Rapsodo basically says that it doesn't move basically at all. But visually, when you watch it, it, it looks like it has right to left break from center field and some vertical break downward. And Really, it, it's played very well in the minor league so far. It's been probably my best pitch. And I think it, it really just plays well because I throw it through a fastball tunnel with fastball intent, and I throw it pretty hard. And I think it almost uses my my fastball break. The differential between the, the non-break of the slider, per se, and the break of my fastball, which is kind of up and arm side, allows that slider to, to visually look like it's moving to the hitter. But I'm a little bit different from Cole, I guess, in that respect, like, I like to look at my spin from bullpens and everything like that to make sure everything is where it needs to be. And actually, like, over this time off, I kind of developed a, a sweeping curveball that kind of is differential from my fastball, like, because I wanted to add a third pitch that I could tunnel off of a high, high fastball because my slider doesn't have enough vertical movement to really do that effectively. So I think, like, the analytics are really helpful in that respect just to make sure your repertoire is kind of optimized i would say so i mean i do put put weight in that stuff yeah your slider sounds maybe a little bit like an amir garrett or let me see the who is the blue jays closer a few years ago who had the nasty slider uh, uh, ken giles ken giles yes i believe yeah. he has a, a similar slider it's very very similar yes super let's move to change-ups Sort of an open-ended question. How do each of you throw your change-ups and why does it work for you better than other grips? Well, I mean, kind of to build off that last point, though, like I, I'm I'm still using the data. Like I use a lot of the data in the off-season to make sure that I'm tunneling and, and, my, and my mechanics are pretty similar to what I have been doing in the past. And that kind of brings, brings up the change-up and being extremely important throwing it out of the fastball arm slot that needs to tunnel with my my two seam or, or sinker everyone calls it a sinker i guess i'll just keep calling it a sinker it's a two seam grip but it's a sinker apparently so basically i, I throw i throw my change up off the off my four seam fastball i i use the inner side of the or i use the seam on my index finger it's kind of just resting on my middle knuckle and then I'm gripping the with my middle fingers, two middle fingers, my ring and middle finger on the seam. And literally, I am thinking about throwing a fastball off my middle fingers. But the only part of my that like I have full control of the ball is actually 
like the inside of my index and on my thumb on the bottom. My my pinky is just kind of resting on the side of the ball and I'm almost holding it on my fingertips. So it's kind of creating like a like almost like a two seam spin off of my four seam grip. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre to kind of explain, but it's it's more so it's it's just a fastball with my middle fingers on my fingertips. And I've just make sure that I'm accelerating like I do with my two seam fastball. And I basically can sink it or let it run off the plate by just that acceleration. And Colin, are you throwing a change up at all these days? I'm not. Since uh, I've moved to the bullpen and uh, it's probably my least early pitch I have least feel for, honestly, I've pretty much scrapped it and I'm just fastball, slider, curveball at this point. I did a good job spinning and it had a an awesome shape, but my feel for it to land in the strike zone was was the lowest out of any of my pitches. And I, I kind of put more of a priority on attacking guys than kind of having a wider repertoire at this point in my career. Yeah. Do you like the bullpen? I don't mind it. I think I preferred starting. I, I kind of liked having a, a routine, almost like a five-day or seven-day routine. It's different. And if that's what's going to get me on the mound, I don't mind it one bit. Yeah, and Cole, you are having a lot of success as a starter. Suppose down the road you are asked to go to the bullpen. Is that a good fit for you? Does your crafty lefty repertoire work in that role? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have majority of my big league innings are as a reliever, and it's it was a learning experience for sure because I'd never relieved up until that point, and even my relief appearances in <laughs> the minor leagues were actually just delayed starts because we had rain delays. So it wasn't even that I had true relief appearances in the minor leagues. It was starts that would be in the second or third inning because we had a rain delay and we just kind of anticipated for that. So just learning how to pitch out of the bullpen in the big leagues was was extremely challenging at the start. But now that I have my feet wet, on a regular rest in the big leagues, it's I feel like I, I could go into that role and be able to succeed and and use my pitch repertoire the way I know how. And uh, I think the the importance for me of my changeup is what's going to allow me to do that in the future. Um, but I'm going to keep uh, rolling with what I got now. Yeah, if you did go into the bullpen, would you have to battle the urge to try to strike batters out? Because that's what relievers are expected to do. Heck no. Heck no, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't changing my approach for anything. I want to, <laughs> I, I like, I want to get the boys back in on offense as quickly as possible. But the more, more so, it's like the strikeout is great. I, I, it's awesome. Guys can strike people out. I can strike people out. I love striking guys out looking. Don't get me wrong. It's the best feeling ever. But the same time, what's wrong with a little ground out? What's wrong with a fly out? Like what's wrong with a hard contact liner to your center fielder for an out? It's, it's an out. <laughs> We're back in the dugout. Like to me, if a guy hits a ball hard, you know, why do we call in spring training, a hard hit ball to an infielder or to an outfielder, a spring, a good spring training out? Well, it's because we got an out and the guy hit it hard. So he's going to be happy about his at bat what changes during the season? <laughs> like 
so to me, I, I just want to, I want to be able to execute pitches the way I know how and, and continue doing that. And, and now it's going to be an out. And if the strikeouts there, I'm going to try taking it, but it's not, it's not of an importance of mine. Yeah. Is that something, do you look at it at all that way, Colin? Because looking at your numbers throughout the minor leagues, your strikeout rates are pretty impressive. We've been pretty heavily conditioned here with, with the Astros to try to punch as many dudes out as possible. Um, and I guess that's probably more analytics driven, which is understandable. You know, if, if guys aren't putting the ball in play, there's less chance to have damage done against you, you know, whether it be home runs, doubles, triples, which is where the real damage is. But I, I've definitely kind of toned back my drive to get strikeouts, I think, especially like early in counts instead of kind of nibbling. I, I, if somebody wants to put the ball in play first two or three pitches of the at-bat, I'm not going to really like work around them in order to get to like 0-2-1-2 and hope they don't put it in play, you know? Um, but then if I get to those 0-2-1-2-2-2 counts, I'm for sure trying to make, make a strikeout pitch, you know? Um, and that's just kind of, I think that's one of my strong suits. Like I, I have the good slider. I have a, a good high spinning fastball and just kind of try to execute them in my good locations and, if I do that, you know, more often than not, it will be a strikeout or hopefully we contact. And we are running out of time, but I do want to touch on one more thing. You both excel in retiring hitters. Uh, something that you don't get to do much of at all anymore is actually hit. Colin, do you like hitting? Oh, boy. I haven't touched a bat since high school. <laughs> so that <laughs> And I wasn't that great at it. <laughs> so that would be a no. <laughs> no. Uh, Cole, I think you do like hitting, though. I absolutely love it. I, I'm i sorry, Colin, if I ever have to face you in a National League game, which probably won't ever happen because that will probably change, but I would love to hit against you. Like, I would just, I would love it. Like, I, the worst, I faced a couple of relievers in 19. I was more terrified to facing them than I was Kershaw's curveball. It was, I mean, the fact that guys are throwing 98, like there's just an adrenaline there that's just I don't get to experience very often, but I but Birdman bats I a little shout out to them I, I use their bats and they gave me a little my own model and I, I've I've just enjoyed hitting because it gives me a different perspective on the mound and and being able to coach hitting in the off season gives me that perspective too so it's it's more so I I just enjoy hitting because I'm playing a chess match now with the pitcher whereas I'm playing a chess match as a pitcher all the time. Yes, Birdman Bats, of course, being the company owned by uh, Gary Malik and Lars Anderson, recent Fangraphs audio guest. So uh, I think they will both be very happy to hear the uh, the shout out. <laughs> yeah, Colin, Colin, do you own a do you own a bat? I don't. I think my dad he just sent me. He's cleaning out the garage. He just got rid of all of them from my high school days. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, what'd you hit in high? What'd you what'd you use in high oh, school? I want to say it was the first year of BB cores, and it, it was an Easton Reflex. Oh, the Reflex! <laughs> uh. Brutal. <laughs> it was so brutal. That first year of BB cores stunk. Oh my goodness! You couldn't hit it anywhere. Easy to pitch. Though. So you didn't get a chance to hit at, in college at Mercyhurst. No, I, I didn't hit in college either. I think Cleveland might have had a, a pitcher's BP day from a couple of shutouts, but that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> I miss those days. Right. So I guess the one thing that uh, we have determined here is that we have somebody who likes to hit, somebody who doesn't like to hit. 
we have a crafty lefty and we have a righty bullpen arm who likes to strike guys out. So you guys are very different, <laughs> but you were both uh, great guests on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, thanks for having us or thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun and, and uh, this, was, this was a blast. Yep. Thank you, David. It was really great. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Hi, welcome. My name is Jason Martinez from Fangraphs. I'm here with Jay Jaffe, also from Fangraphs. He is the Hall of Fame guru, which makes him a perfect person to have written about Albert Pujols this week, which, which he did, and to have on, on Fangraphs audio. So glad to be here with, with Jay. Jay, how's everything going? I'm good. I'm good. Can't complain. So, you know, I, I think... When Albert Pujols was was uh, designated for assignment and eventually released, first thing that came to mind was, you know, is this the end? Is this the end for Albert? He hasn't been good for a while. And then you start, you know, so you start thinking about, okay, which other, you know, Hall of Fame players have kind of ended their career in this way? And then you start thinking about rosters and, you know, and you go, maybe there's a fit for this guy somewhere else. And you start, you know, Albert hasn't been terrible against lefties, half the league doesn't hit lefties maybe there is a fit maybe maybe it's not over yet what goes through your mind as far as far as especially you somebody who who is thinking about Pujols as far as like okay you know future hall of famer when is he going to end when is his career going to end when is he going to be eligible what goes through your mind at this at this time yeah it was you know it, it was kind of a surprise I mean look Pujols has been below replacement level this is his fifth straight year where he's where he's below zero and more and obviously the five years before that he was kind of a shadow of what he had been in, in, in uh, St. Louis but you know, you figure there's there's got to be a you know some kind of fit out there that a change of scenery might do something for him. Kind of an unseemly ending in Anaheim for all the you know for all of the obvious frustrations in terms of his performance that you know that he was always I think well regarded there to the point that Artie Moreno I think probably shielded him from a lot of the criticism. But you know I think the day after it happened or the day it happened or the week it happened, Joey Votto of the Reds had just just gone on the injured list with a broken thumb, so it was easy to spitball that as a possibility. And then you've got the White Sox managed by Tony Larusa, who of course managed him in, in St. Louis. Figured that might be a fit. The Marlins, who pursued Pujols as a free agent, always seem to be drawn to any Latin American ball player who they think might give them an, an attendance boost. Those were just a few spitballs. I did not see the Dodgers coming in this one at all. And truthfully, I mean, I think aside from the fact that their pinch hitting has stunk this year, I really couldn't see a fit. And then, like, just hours after the news was reported that Pujols was joining the Dodgers, Corey Seager broke his hand. And then suddenly you could see the lane for how that for how this was, would be put together because I guess the Dodgers think highly enough of, of Gavin Lux still that they think he could he can cover shortstop for a month while Seager's out. And then they've got a, that leaves them with, with a number of options at second base, including Max Muncie. And if Muncie's playing second base, uh, suddenly you've got you've you've got first base open, or at least against lefties, because Gavin Lux does not hit lefties well enough to, to play against them. And Albert Pujols does hit lefties. So the bet comes down to can Albert Pujols hit lefties better than Gavin Lux? And I think the stats pretty clearly say say that that's the case. So suddenly it makes a little bit of sense. 
are a lot of moving parts on the Dodgers at any given time. But right now, especially with Cody Bellinger out and a few other injuries, including A.J. Pollock hitting the injured list, they're shuffling all kinds of players around everywhere. So this could actually be something where they almost need Albert Pujols because they don't have a lot of great options available to them internally. Right. And even if it's just temporarily, I I, I think, I think, Fans tend to kind of look at, especially a big name like Albert, and you go, Albert, where does he fit on the Dodgers? You know, and you start thinking about all the guys, even if they're hurt, it's like you got this guy and this guy. Where, where does he even fit? And, and I don't think Dodgers are thinking about it like that. I think the Dodgers are thinking about today <laughs> and tomorrow, and then you know, what are we going to? How are we going to get through the next week at, at this at this right. very moment? It's like, who cares if he's Albert Pujols? The fact that he's Albert Pujols is kind of a, a bonus. It's like, hey, look at our fans already. You know, we're the World Series champs. The Dodger fans love the Dodgers. But hey, come look, come come, come watch Albert Pujols. You know, you know, future Hall of Famer. But I think it's like, yeah, we have a tent, we have a fit temporarily. Maybe you don't want Max Muncie playing second base too often. But you know, I think when you think of teams like the the Dodgers, the Giants do it a lot. The Rays, they're just constantly shuffling players in and out, even claiming guys off the waiver wire. And you're like, why? Why is this? first place team or why is this you know one of the best teams in baseball claiming a player that was just dfa'd by one of the worst teams in baseball right and they're like well we're gonna dfa him next week and try to get him through waivers outright him and now he's now he's in our mind now he's in triple a for the rest of the season and i think you know if, if you look at the, the, the way the dodgers are structured especially you know last year when they had all those platoons going over the last couple of years really they're trying to get you know, their manager, we get David Ro- Dave Roberts, a lot of options every day. And then they're going to look at all the numbers and they go, what is the best, what is the best lineup for this, for, you know, against this starting pitcher for the next, you know, five or six innings. Right. And then how's that going to set us up for later in the game? And so I think, yeah, you know, it wasn't the, I don't think anybody was thinking of the Dodgers. So like I said, you look at, you know, if I just pull up team offense versus left-handed pitchers, let's say just, just first baseman, I mean, you go down the list. You know, Rangers, Braves, Nationals, Diamondbacks, Pirates, Reds, Yankees, Dodgers are there too. Uh, Twins, Giants, Tigers, Brewers, Cleveland, Seattle, all well below average. You know, so it's like, okay, yeah, he fits He fits somewhere, at least, you know, at least temporarily. But yeah, when you start thinking about the Dodgers and the way they move guys around and versatility and mixing and matching, it made a lot more sense. Yeah, I think the you know one thing that was I think overlooked a bit with all the drama of of the of the DFA is that his stat cast numbers suggest that that you know as bad as his line is and we're talking a 198 average, 250 on base and 372 slugging percentage, his stat cast numbers are actually much much better than that comparatively speaking and 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 that again is is an argument that uh, we haven't really seen the real Albert Pujols here um and even if he's not going to be to hit up to his prime level then there's something there and for you know for a free player who fills a need this is you know i guess a, a an interesting short term experiment and you know and Pujols has said all the right things about you know he's just he's here to do whatever the fact that that you know you've got a three-time MVP and two-time champion or whatever rubbing off on 
on all of these young players. And, and you know, he was spoken of very highly as a mentor to, to Mike Trout. I mean, the best player in the world. Yeah, you know, that maybe, that maybe he's, he, he's talking to some of these guys and maybe helping them, even if he's not actually playing, you know, be a, be a, a secondary uh, bonus as well. But it's still uh, a jarring sight to see him uh, wearing that unfamiliar uniform, and it reminded me of of several other strange fits in the past. I had a actually had a tweet from last year that was just Dodgers alone of guys who either finished their career with the Dodgers or had a, a late career stint that was that was brief and and relatively insignificant. They weren't going to talk about that one on the plaque. Uh, like Gary Carter, uh, Jim Tomey, Greg Maddox, Juan Marichal, Hoyt Wilhelm finished his career there. Ricky Henderson finished his career there too. So it was easy to come up with this list and I kind of tweaked it. And uh, by, by my own criteria, I may have overstated it uh, uh, with regards to at least Willie Randolph because he was actually good, whereas most of the rest of these guys were crap while they were with the Dodgers. Yeah, Greg Maddox was pretty good, I guess. Frank Robinson, too. But it's got the wheels spinning as to all of these sites that, that we see time and again throughout the major leagues, whether it's Hank Aaron as a Brewer or Willie Mays as a Met. Endless list like that. Can you think of a guy? I was, I, was, I was trying to think of somebody, and nobody really came to mind. And I looked up a few guys that, that kind of that were similar to Albert, where it's like, you know, Hall of Fame career for, what, 10, 15 years, and then, you know, like five, five, five straight bad years. I mean, he's, he's done. Like he's, I think most people will say, yeah, he's, he's, he's been done for a couple of years. Right. But move on to a, to a different team, maybe as a part-time player and, you know, play an important role, even have like a, you know, a good year as a part-time player or like play a big role in like a championship team. And can you think of anybody who was just like, they were done a few years ago and then they just kind of landed somewhere randomly and and then like and and had a good and had a and good had, a good and run. had a like a good like a little good at least like a good a good story. I mean like like Ricky Henderson had Ricky Henderson was you know he was great and then he was he was still okay even when he was with the Padres late in his career and then he was kind of like he was kind of done late 30s like he he bounced around I think he had a year one more year in Oakland and then like his age 40 year with the Mets he like he was really good he had like mm-hmm. you know 30, I think he had 30 doubles, 12 homers, almost 40 stolen bases, and like all those walks like he always did. Um, and then he was done after that. He played for a few more years. But and I was trying to think of, of, of if there was anybody who was just like, yeah, this guy's done. But hey, but then he happened to hang around long enough and he had this right. nice moment. Like like maybe Albert is I'm, – I'm thinking Albert thought of that when he signed with the Dodgers, when he maybe he had a few opportunities and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go play with these guys, the world champs. They're going to be in the playoffs. Maybe I have one more one more chance to like to, you know to go out on top here, right? A couple come to mind. One that Gary Sheffield had a really nice season with the Mets at age forty in, in two thousand nine after kind of bottoming out in Detroit the year before. That one kind of strikes me. I believe he got his his five uh, hundredth uh, home run was was his first home run as a Met, uh, even so that was that was kind of cool. Another one that comes to mind on a lesser scale, Andrew Jones. You know, after his run in Atlanta was over, he signed that deal with the Dodgers, and it just it just blew up immediately because he was just dreadful. Hit 158 and was uh, well below replacement level, and the Dodgers actually went to the point of buying him out for the remainder of his deal and deferring the money. And then he bounced around in a few places, and he actually had, out of the four seasons that he was still in the majors, two of them were really solid years you know, a platoon role playing all around the outfield. Uh, 2010 with the White Sox, 
uh, and then 2011 with the Yankees. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't the player he once was, which is I think you know borderline Hall of Famer, or actually probably more than borderline Hall of Famer. He's he's a guy I have who's who's 11th in Jaws, well above the peak standard and and pretty close to the career standard. But you know he was he was a role player, and in a way that that you don't often see. You know, former stars assuming those came to mind, and I also was thinking of uh, the way that the Yankees in the, especially the Yankees in the fifties, it seemed always seemed to have an inventory of guys who were who had become famous somewhere else, like Enos Slaughter and Johnny Mize coming off their bench and just being like really really tough outs in part time roles. I mean, even even past their forties in, in Slaughter's case. So, what are the chances? You think Albert retires after this year, or do you think he's like one of those guys who just doesn't want, always goes into the offseason and is like, no, I'm going to make some changes. You know, he works so hard. And and, and uh, this is the, one of the other things that bums me out about not having a DH, because I think if there was a DH in the NAL this year, he, he probably would have been a good fit with the Cardinals. Yeah, even just like a bench lefty platoon, and then he goes and finishes his career with 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 Yadier, you know, and then then retires after the season. Yeah, I think you know, I think yes. The, unfortunately, the DH, the the lack of the DH probably limited his employment options, and and I think made made the Dodgers move all the more surprising because they didn't have that job opening. Although they do, I believe, have at least uh, one or two interleague series coming up within the next couple of weeks. I know they're I know they're they're at Houston for one of them, so that's that's a that's a few extra at bats for him. But my hunch is is that this is really just a way to go out gracefully, you know, playing till the end of this contract. Because there's probably nothing unless he starts hitting really well for the remainder of the season, you're not talking about a guy who's going to get a, an offer of guaranteed money and an early signing that takes up a takes up a forty man roster space. You're talking about a guy who's going to have to wait until February to get a contract, and probably it's going to be a minor league one that he's going to have to make good on. And I think that this is probably more just like, look, I'm already being paid for this. Let's you know, let's let's play it out till the end. Work hard till the end. I don't want to coast and don't want to rest on my laurels here. I'm going to you know try to help some team win a championship. And I think that's it's you know it, it's it's this you know saving face notion of honor type thing that that uh, that he's doing here, and and I think that's you know that, that's worth doing because the money is guaranteed, but he you know he wants to at least attempt to try to be worth it at least some you know some amount of it rather than being a total write off. And not that all the great you know not that that many great players get to, get to do this, but like to, it would be so cool if if Pujols was able to have that. That last hurrah, like everybody, like he announces a retirement and he, he knows he's not going to get cut in whatever team he's on. And he, every every series, it's like hey, a celebration of Albert Pujols. And just having, you know, just being that influence on so many young players that grew up watching him. So many young Latino players in the league right now. I, I don't know if you saw that that clip of, uh, of Vlad Jr. talking with him. And, and then Vlad Jr. says bye to him. And he starts walking away and he goes, oh, wait, wait, wait. And then he calls over his teammate Santiago Espinal, and he goes, he's kind of telling him, "Oh, I got it. I told him I was going to introduce you to him, you know." And then oh. Espinal comes over and like, "Oh my God, I get to meet Pujols, Jesus, you know." And it's like it just re- reminded me, like these kids all grew up, you know, playing baseball right. like, with this guy, like is is one of the best hitters, you know, ever. And now he's still playing. So I'm like, it would be, you know, he's one of those guys you'd like to see retire where. You know, you know ahead of time, and when you, when he's going into wherever it is for the last time, you know you have a celebration. He gets the reception, yeah. Reception, yeah. 
Yeah, it's you know it's interesting. I don't know. I guess we'll see what happens here with 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 the Dodgers and, the, and their roster situation here. How long he persists? But I was just looking, pulled up their schedule here while you were talking. They go to St. Louis September sixth to the ninth. You know, there's a lot of baseball between now and then, and a lot can happen. But I'm sure that those dates on the calendar are circled as as a, as a potential what if. Also thinking about you know the possibility that well you know if this doesn't work out for a while you know, for for very long, there's there still probably would be an opportunity in September for Pujols to join the Cardinals for, you know, some kind of swan song, even if it's just like a weekend series or whatever, you know, where they give him a day and, you know, let him have that ovation. I, I, could, I could see that happening. You know, I think he, whatever he deserves, does, you know, whatever whatever his current merits are as a player, he deserves better than, than a midseason release, you know, as his, as his final, as his final hurrah. All right, last question for you, Jay. Uh, after Pujols, who else? So who's next in line as far as the you know surefire Hall of Famer, probably nearing the end of their career. So once Pujols is is, is retired, who who's after him? I know Yadier is probably getting close. Um, who else are we looking at after that? Ooh, well, let's see here. I have to think about that for a second here. Maybe like a like a Max Scherzer. Yeah, well, I think Justin Verlander. Verlander. Justin yeah. Verlander is 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 the one who, to me, has checked off the boxes for the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's got over two hundred wins. He's got over three thousand strikeouts. Uh, Scherzer, I think, will get to three thousand strikeouts this year. I wrote about that at Fangraphs last week. Two hundred wins is probably next year for him. I think that's. Probably the the uh, the the next one in terms of the absolute locks. I I think you know a lot of people believe that Yadier Molina is a surefire Hall of Famer. I have written about this endlessly. I think it's it's likely, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a first ballot. I think it's you know it's it's going to be a a fairly uh, uh, his his candidacy is a little bit more complicated if you're going by the numbers rather than the gut. And uh, even with the framing numbers, there'll be a lot of debate around it. So I wouldn't call him a a, a surefire anything. But I do think that that yes, after Pujols, it's it's probably Verlander. He intends to pitch next year after he comes back from Tommy John surgery. We'll see if the if the desire is still there. Zach Granke and and Clayton Kershaw, I think, have probably done enough to earn enshrinement, and uh, they've got uh, free agencies uh, not too far down the road. We'll see we'll see whether they decide to stick around. But you know, I think once they hang it up, they're they're surefire guys, and those to me are are the most obvious ones. And then there's some some more that are maybe a little you know. Still need still need a few finishing touches on uh, on their careers. Buster Posey and Joey Votto, I think, being being a couple of those. What about uh, Miguel Cabrera? Oh yeah, Cabrera is a pretty obvious one. He boy he he has a sh- a chance to get to three thousand hits and five hundred home runs in the same season, which would be a first. But boy, he is like as bad as like a pool's nightmare scenario. I mean, yeah. he's up to he's up to one eighty one uh, batting average and two fifty five slugging percentage. He was like even lower than that as when I checked a few days ago. He must have gotten a few hits here and there. Yeah, a bunch of two hit games here in the last in the last week. So looking looking better than he did, but it seemed like his hit total was subtracting. It was, it was going so so slowly. I mean, you know, and he's on he's under contract through at least 2023. 20, 23, yeah. So he yeah, could with, be like a pool situation where it's like yeah. you have to make a decision and you know, you release this guy. I suspect that the once he reaches those milestones, the Tigers are going to have to have a frank conversation with him about their future employment because he's going to get in the way of the rebuild. I mean, a guy with a 54 WRC plus and and you know three years three years out of the last five below replacement level is it really a guy you 
should be focused on building around in 2022 and 2023. So I think there's there's something bad you've done there. But yeah, he's a surefire Hall of Famer. It's just right now it's kind of stomach turning to watch him. Yeah. So when uh, when the Tigers release him in two years and then he signs with <laughs> the Dodgers, we'll be be back on Fangraphs Audio <laughs> talking yeah. all about it. All right, Jay. Good talking to you. All right. Thanks so much. Fun conversation. All right. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the program. Don't forget to check out the Fangraphs.com merch page as well as our newsletter. It's a great way to stay updated on the many things we have going on over at Fangraphs. We will be back next week. Have a good one.